0: Our interaction with civilization is a temporal one by definition. It spans across time. So the very things that we do today, the tools and technology that enables it, is the very thing and foundation of the technology and tools that will be produced and the way civilization will be defined a hundred and a thousand years from now.
1: Welcome to the Explorations Podcast, conversations that bring together philosophy, finance, the arts. Education, theology, and more to explore a life well lived. I'm your host, Lewis. I'm joined by my co hosts, Joe and Edwin. Guys, how are you guys doing today? Excellent, man. Thanks for having us on. Doing good, man. Good to see y'all. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you guys today. We are talking about technology and man's relationship with technology. We're going to explore the benefits, the drawbacks to its use. And the conversation is going to kind of center around like, man's responsibility with technology. We're gonna get into some artificial intelligence and some algorithms and some Heidegger. So to start us off, I wanted to give the Wikipedia definition of artificial intelligence because it was very illuminating for me personally as I was exploring this topic. To define artificial intelligence, it's intelligence perceiving, synthesizing, and inferring information as demonstrated by machines, as opposed to intelligence displayed by humans or non-human animals. Examples are all throughout life in all technology, web search engines, self-driving cars, even automated decision-making. So to start off this conversation, first, just from that term, what is your take, and this is an open question to either Joe or Edwin, what is your take on the term artificial intelligence? For me personally, I saw it as a very narrow definition, but from there, it kind of seems like a huge spectrum that covers all of technology. What is your take on this term artificial intelligence? And what are your kind of opening thoughts on man's relationship with technology?
2: I'll just offer just some initial reactions to that, Louis. When I think of those two words, artificial and intelligence, they're both operative, of course, right? They're both doing some sort of important work in communicating a particular truth. The word intelligence is somewhat fascinating, right? Because this presupposes a definition. Are we all working with a clear understanding of what intelligence is? And there's much to be said about that. And artificial, right? That is to say, not necessarily a direct extension from nature right it's something that is contrived some artifacts something that is put together one could even think well in as far as artificial artificiality is an emanation of human culture and human culture itself comes as it were already from the nature of homo sapien let's say then is it truly artificial? Are we talking artificial in in as far as it's like two steps removed? Of course, these are just some of the things that come to mind. Again, just some initial reactions.
0: Yeah, I tend to agree with Joe there, especially leaning in on the term intelligence. From that perspective, the problem that I actually have is the term artificial. Mm. Intelligence, if you define it in some ways, usually is represented by some definition of information flow, right? And from that perspective, especially as I know we'll get to the singularity, we'll have a hard time living with that term artificial intelligence as we get progressively better with the processing of information. And I think we're getting pretty close to better understanding that. But it's fascinating because a lot of what's going on in AI is informing us on what intelligence truly means. So it's actually a vehicle for explorations of the very term that defines it. So I know we get into that, but I just gave you a non-definition or something, (laughs) but I think that's where we're going.
1: Yeah, that's good. Artificial intelligence to me just sounds like a buzzword that kind of is just like another way of saying technology or digital technology. I came across this term called the AI effect. The AI effect occurs when onlookers discount the behavior of an artificial intelligence by arguing that it's not real intelligence. So it's like a good example is optical character recognition. I would say in like the late 90s, early 2000s, this idea that a computer can see an image and know what letters are on the image, like using machine learning. Yeah. That was like a really big deal on a technological level. But today, I don't think someone would refer to that technology as AI. It's just like a standard thing now, right? Like CAPTCHAs and stuff have to get so sophisticated, defeat the average computer from being able to do OCR, or optical character recognition. So what do you guys think about artificial intelligence just really being like a buzz term? Like, do you guys agree with that? Do you think AI is just something that they slap on to an algorithm? Like is all computer programming, essentially AI? What do you guys think?
2: yeah you know i think in a certain sense Lewis, yes and i myself would need to explore the topic a bit more but it does seem to be a kind of linguistic appendage that folks tend to <laughs> wield around with regards to any perceived advancements you brought up the word algorithm right if we take a few steps back and just take that word and think about What that may mean in a broad sense, the use of even a basic bronze tool and how it is used. The technique, which is where the word technology, in fact, comes from, the Greek technicon, and and there's much to be said about that, could be seen as a certain algorithm. So if I am a carpenter and I'm going to teach you how to use this (laughs) tool and show you the particular steps in order to carve this wood as it were, I'm inputting into you an algorithm, right? That is to say, when you see X variable (laughs) and Y element, then apply X to Y, and when Z arrives as another variable, then adapt, right? So all of these things are algorithmic in and of itself. And machine learning is, of course, that in a far more advanced way. And so is that AI? Sure, you know, again, sure. Is it self-awareness? And I think that's where really the interesting questions are coming out of, at least for me, is this a sign of consciousness? Is there real self-awareness? And then within the fields of psychology, sociology, philosophy of mind, the mirror experiment, how do we know, and so on. So so those are some of the things that come about. But again, to your point, yeah, I think this is somewhat used often, especially in the media. It's provocative. And it, there's a selling point to it as well. There's, there's an economic drive behind it, without a doubt, I think.
0: And I'll just add uh, some of the AI scientists and engineers' perspectives on this that I've recently heard, which is that AI is any technology that we don't yet understand. And the reason they lean in on that is if you look at some of the previous, to your point, the, the optical recognition, that was considered AI. In a lot of ways, people didn't think it was possible. And when it was possible, it was no longer AI. And Watson now, in the creation of it, everyone said, no, we can't do that, right? That's not possible. And that that was considered AI. And when we achieved it, it's no longer AI. Oh, no, that's not AI or machine learning. We're always talking about
2: a boundary, a constraint of some type that makes up the definition. These sort of conversations are so important because I think what they help us do is orient our own thinking around what is happening, what we are producing culturally both groups, as well as individually. And I think that's really important, especially for our viewers and our listeners, because with that decisive awareness, and it is decisive, right? And as far as we're incrementally growing in our knowledge of these things, we are then better able to handle the varying questions and queries that will arise naturally out of that. And for me, as a theologian, as a philosopher, I can't help but think about these realities in relation to the moral and spiritual formation of anthropos of the human being as such right so there are i think really key critical questions that need to first be engaged as to what do we mean about these realities what are they and then moving on to think about their relationship with us as it were the interface between the technique and the human and of course that in of itself deserves an entire conversation
1: and what falls out of that. I think like the best way to have this conversation at this point with technology is to go back to like really follow the through line with man and its relationship to tech. And so let's go back a couple thousand years, but like as let's far do as...
2: <laughs> I got the time machine.
1: Right. <laughs> the earliest examples we have of human technology and creativity is during the Paleolithic period, that's when we're deducing that man really had a gift of language at this point, or like the ability to utilize language to his or her benefit. And there was also tools being made during the Paleolithic period. What are your guys' thoughts as far as man's relationship to tools and technology at like 15,000 to 40,000 years BC, you know, like, it seems like some of the stuff we're saying now about artificial intelligence, the magic box and stuff, it was reminding me of that research I was doing and thinking about (laughs) what man or homo sapien would have felt like with a tool for the first time empowering him or her to do something unheard of before. So from the beginning of time, the very start of man and tools. What are your thoughts on technology from this perspective? What a sick question, bro. <laughs> it's a lot. It's, it, it is. It's 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 a lot. So, but it's so good because
2: we say homo sapien, right? We can also invoke the phrase homo faber, right? Or homo faber, depending on how you pronounce it. The creature who makes, right? And it is true. We go from a sort of a, a cultural anthropological perspective, an archaeological perspective the first signs of intelligence right is the use of tools and and the finding of that and its relation even to cave paintings and all of that there i think what that tells us is that number one the question is inescapable in as far as it emanates from who and what we are right that is to say we are creatures that consider not just external tools as such, but even all kinds of techniques, right? Ways of figuring out and engaging nature. So as to this is a stronger language to dominate nature, right? (laughs) Moving from, let's say, hunter gatherers to agricultural settings, right? This required a whole slew of genius moves, right? Sort of these ingenuity Flexing, if you will, right? To bring about crops and all of that there. And so I think what that says philosophically is is that, my goodness, this comes directly out of what we are. There's something about wonder and curiosity as well, our relationship to said reality, our thinking and sort of looking at a tool and then making it better and all of that, right? In relation to language, which is what you brought up. Oh my goodness, there's so much to say, but yeah it's who and what we are that's not to say that the human being as a maker or as one who engages in technique is an exhaustive definition but it definitely seems to emanate from the very being of
1: anthropos would you say that defines human beings like that's a critical component the ability like the tool part the technology part
2: Yeah, I think there's an essential element to the definition there with regards to the human being. It's not sufficient. It's not, again, an exhaustive definition of the human being. But it comes damn close (laughs) to, I think, identifying something quite unique. Again, from purely an evolutionary perspective. And, you know, I'm not an evolutionary biologist of any sort. But just from my readings and just even thinking about speciation and whatnot, what allows us to be the kind of species we are is is that we're able to transcend our boundaries, right? I mean, let's consider, for example, right? You know, we could be looking at the ocean and he's like, damn, I wonder what's down there, you know, like imagine swimming like fish. And then... You know, human beings have the audacity to be like, you know what, let's figure this out. And we end up going into the ocean, and inventing submarines, et cetera, right? And transcending our bounds, right? Our immediate environmental limits. This is quite unique, right? Whether it's flying, going out to space, going into the ocean, whatever it may be, by means of the tools, by means of technology, our ability to make grants us greater advancements and whatnot so yeah it's something that is immediate i can't also help as a catholic christian to think of the opening scriptures in the book of genesis and how the invocation of technology and tools in relation to the building of civilizations right we see that in the first opening chapters of genesis is quite decisive within the epochal narrative in that mythological narrative that's illustrating and articulating deep theological truths. So it definitely comes from who and what we are.
0: Just wanted to add to what you were saying, Joe, and you said it there perfectly. One way I've heard this laid out is that tools are actually the enabler of cultural and societal evolution. And AI is just the latest catalyst to our progress, right? So when you think about how our society evolves, the tools and technology that we create is the very thing that helps us progress. And if we go back to our discussion on education, a lot of what enables education to occur so that intergenerational transmission is the tools and technologies that we create. One of my most recent favorite concept that has come about around this is this idea of the data ohm, which is essentially, we're actually this information producing machine. And we spit all this data out. There's like all these things that we do. So if you're into archaeology and so on, that's you're messing with the data on, right? You're looking for data around how human beings used to exist and so on. And what that does mean, to your point, is that our interaction with civilization is a temporal one by definition. It spans across time. So the very things that we do today the tools and technology that enables it is the very thing and foundation of the technology and tools that will be produced and the way civilization will be defined a hundred and a thousand years from now. I see it like, you know, as this, you know, chemical reaction and tools and technology is a catalyst that's thrown in there. And without it, you see no evolution.
2: And it's amazing how, you know, as you were sharing that, Edwin, I'm thinking immediately of the technology of scrolls, right, of papyrus, of books, and the transmission of knowledge therein, that we don't need the person to be there dictating to me, but that they can write something down, and that could be transmitted thousands of years, if not millions of years.
1: Can we take a look at the drawbacks of technology, just because from what you two were sharing, technology. Seems very kind of like progressive, forward-thinking and unifying, but then when I think about technology in the sense of just the context of today, like the world today, I see it utilized in a very violent way, not just like actual violence, but even just on a social level and in different forms, I see it as a potential to be divisive. I don't know. It seems like it's being utilized in a lot of divisive ways today and historically has been utilized not just for morally good reasons, but for morally bad reasons as well. I don't know, I feel like there's like an angst that humanity has with technology within the context of the past, just looking at history and the benefits and the drawbacks of technology. How do we one, analyze the drawbacks to technology, but how do we kind of reconcile that with today? This
2: brings to mind a particular conversation I had 20 years back during one of my breaks at university, when I returned back home to Brooklyn, New York, and I was hanging out with some of my boys we were hanging outside. And one of the new things at the time was the cell phone. People have getting a Motorola and things like that. We were chilling in Sheepshead Bay in South Brooklyn, near the water, as we often did, maybe had a cigar hanging out. And the conversation unfolded around technology. Specifically, one of my friends was speaking about how these cell phones will one day become so advanced that the big blocky desktops that we have at home those computers will be in our pockets and far more advanced and far more powerful and he began to from that prediction to further predict how that will begin to radically remove human ills and societal woes right that this will bring about a new enlightenment and the eradication of ignorance. And this goes back to our my past conversation about ignorance and education, given that now everybody is going to have the world's libraries at their fingertips. Right. And so on and so forth. And the majority of us were very excited, like, yeah, yeah. And we're kind of adding to the predictions. And I remember coming from more of a pessimistic perspective, but really from the perspective of asking, I think, a critical question, which is, why think that? Why think that there will only be a positive unfolding? And then I anchored that assertion or that question by looking back at history right, and saying, it seems to be even in the 20th century, which is interestingly enough on all accounts, the most bloodiest of all the centuries in human civilization, right? More deaths there than, than all the other centuries in some estimates combined. And there are many reasons for that, including a population boom, but notwithstanding technological progress, I said look you know we seem to as human beings to be naive when it comes to coming technology we tend to have this kind of naive hope like oh it's going to do this that and the third and i remember saying something to the effect that it comes down to us to whether or not we have the wherewithal to truly use technology and you know lewis you just mentioned about the use of technology and the way people are, are doing it and how that's a concern and even an angst for you and you're not alone in that that being said i don't necessarily see technology either as intrinsically positive or negative i see it for the most part neutral there needs to be qualifications about that and so if it is neutral though i think it then depends on you and i depends on its use and if that is the case, and there's something of already to be said about, the, again, the word technology, technique, and usefulness, right? A means to an end. Martin Heidegger will speak of it as something a bit more than just a means to an end or tool. It's, it has the power to reveal technology as a revelator. That's very fascinating, right? If these ideas are true, then what it does, in fact, bring about, what it does reveal, as it were, is what's already in the human heart. Now, that sounds... Perhaps poetic or mystical, or right? But I think there's something really important to look at. And so the question I want to invite all of us to think about is this Do we have the moral fortitude? Do we have the backbone to use said technology in a way that is humanizing rather than dehumanizing? Going back to that story with my friends. Here we are 20 years later, all of us are in possession of the smartphone, right? If not all of us. And if I were to go ahead and do a survey and look at what most people are using their cell phones for, fascinatingly enough, it's probably just to scroll through social media accounts in a more dark, sinister way, the rapid use of pornography, and so on. And it's not the case that folks are just receiving profound enlightenment per se. So I think these are really key questions. And of course, I'm just raising further questions, and I'm attempting to offer some clarification, because I think this conversation needs to continue in this direction. But Louis, I mean, yeah, it's, it's so important. Edwin, what do you think, bro? I don't even know, man. I'm just jumping in there. Every time I hear this
0: question, I think about the Oppenheimer quote, now I become death, the destroyer of worlds. Mm. And this was obviously said on the creation of the most devastating technology in human history, and that was the nuclear bomb. And we are now at a point now where the social fabric of our conscience and our educations and so on that contributes to that is too weak to sustain the pace of technology today, to your point you're making, Joe. So I see this all the time. And in fact, I've gone as far as to say we are all talking about inequality in terms of financial inequality. Whenever we talk about that, we go, oh, there's an inequity that exists. This person has a trillion dollars and this person have you know, whatever. What we fail to see in light of that is the inequity that arises in our education. With the complexities that's involved in our technology today, the corresponding education level that's necessary to even understand how to utilize those tools is so far outpaces what's been in the past that the inequities are truly happening in terms of education. And I think that's more dangerous. Because if we could find a materialistic sort of renewable form to our economy, we solve a lot of sort of the materialistic. But the psychological inequities that exist, that is associated with education, that's not going to go away. If now you're introducing AI, and with AI, by the way, we can have this conversation with AI, I think what a lot of people are not seeing over the horizon is our ability to actually integrate technology into our brains. And with that technological evolution, I mean, you're talking about quantum leap, right? The ability to actually access information at a speed unheard of in history, because right now we have a common inertia to education, which, right, you know, it's as fast as we can read. When that changes, oh, God, right? (laughs) So the inequities that are associated with that, it becomes
2: even, even worse. That scares me quite a bit. Adam when you say psychological inequity, do you mean like a moral formation? Is that what you mean uh, in terms of education?
0: Yeah, actually, it's interesting you say that. It should be both because you're right. There's one that's associated with just general intelligence. And what I would argue is that those that are leading the charge on some of the technology development today and have the intelligence to do so lack the moral aspect, right? Moral training, right? You and I have had this conversation about why it's so critical to introduce training around philosophy for that very reason. Yeah, so I would say that there's even an, from an intelligence perspective, right? Because intelligence is not, just not defined by your ability to read and do math. From intelligence perspective, we have a huge deficit. You know, when you talk about the moral and ethical dimensions, that's even worse, <laughs> right? Right. Yeah, no. and I would argue that there's civilizations before us actually had more moral and ethical intelligence than we do today.
1: Wow. Just following on, we were talking about education and technology. Growing up, I happened to be in a really good school district that my school got Macintosh computers when I was what? in kindergarten. What? Let me find out. In kindergarten, <laughs> hey, right? So I thought this was normal for like a public school. This is public school to have that. But at a young age, I was introduced to the computer mouse. And just because Macintosh only had one click, they didn't even have a right click. Learning that basic skill and like just typing and stuff, I realized gave me such an advantage over other students and other schools in New York City. And my question to you guys, thinking about the next generation, thinking about the moral deficit, the technological gaps that exist, And also this idea that we talked about of like technology, I don't even five years from now, and how much further it will be, how do we prepare the future generation? Or how do we, if we have this desire to pass on the good to the people behind us, how do we even approach something like that in regards to technology, in regards to planning for the singularity or anticipating the leaps and bounds of artificial intelligence? What are some things that we should be thinking about doing, discussing in preparation for something like that in the near future?
0: I actually appreciate Joe's perspective, being in the classroom and seeing the future generation right in front of them. But I would say from a macro perspective, just sort of access to the various technology, we saw this during COVID, right? It's like, all right, we're all going remote. And you know, the schools with the laptops were the ones that was able to lead the charge. And the others were struggling just to figure out how to get a laptop to a home. And it cost millions of dollars to eventually do that. Uh, meanwhile, you know, someone with a laptop at home was was already going, right? They were going. They, so the education did not stop. And this is the crudest form of inequity when it comes to what we're talking about. It gets even worse when we talk about the future technology looking five years from now. And the way we resolve that, it gets into the political, from my perspective, right? It's not that we can't do it. In a lot of ways, we just don't have the will politically to do so. And that requires us talking about like things that might seem socialist and so on. Like, how do you just flatten the opportunities for everybody? And to me, again, the, the answer is political. would love to hear what Joe is
2: seeing. My goodness i'm seeing so much and i don't know how to even begin to articulate a cogent response and i think it's because what i am seeing is something radically systemic and so i'm like which nodule do i begin with you know it's like i'll say a couple of things fascinatingly enough plato's republic comes to mind his assessment on the sort of political leader in this ideal city-state that one would want in order for the city-state to be just, to be well-balanced. And if we read Plato carefully, we can come away with this idea that it's not that power corrupts folks, but rather power grants people who are already corrupt to manifest what's already within. You know, why am I talking about power and politics here? Because technology, without a doubt, is a form of power. That's what technique grants us a, a particular means to some end. If our end is not clarified, if we don't have again the moral wherewithal and vision, the spiritual insight to pursue the good, whatever that may mean, and that's a conversation in and of itself, then technological prowess will always ever be at the service of the egoistic tendency and so you give me technology again like cell phones it's not that the cell phone made me a porn addict i was already just using this as an example impoverished by a certain idea of sexual apprehension whatever the case is right my appetites are just not they haven't been trained Right? And so now you're giving me this. I don't have the fortitude and the wherewithal to handle it, right? So I just get sucked into this black hole. so to the question, Lewis, my goodness. So the question of like what is needed <laughs> in education and and very simply, we need to slow down, not necessarily with technology, but with our approach to technology, right? We should continue to advance. But in our approach to technology and our thinking about it, in our use of it, I think we need to take several steps back take a couple of breaths and really think about ourselves and what is it that we want. This in and of itself, I think, is controversial, right? Whether or not the institutions of learning are there to enact a kind of moral formation, right? Isn't the school just there for the intellectual formation? What about the moral formation? And there's a lot to be said about that in the history of that. I am of the perspective that without a doubt, education has to be the formation of the full human being. That is to say, you know, the intellect, yeah, and the moral. It's all one package. And so if that is not happening, we're creating persons who have tremendous knowledge but crooked hearts. And this is wild because, look, right now I'm teaching during the winter module over at CUNY a course in the history of modern philosophy. And, of course, one of the outstanding figures in the history of modern philosophy is Francis Bacon. And he is essentially the the proto-generator of the scientific method and whatnot. You read Francis Bacon's work, right? He was a visionary, right? He saw what science and technology will eventually bring about. What we do see, however, is that notwithstanding his genius, a kind of concerning perspective, right? Where he's like, yeah, we need to torture nature. We need to invoke the rack, right? To cause her untold pains so that the secrets of nature can be yielded to us, right? Very like violent language, right? Already in the writings of Francis Bacon, we see this in Rene Descartes, the father of modern philosophy. These are the thinkers that set up much of the way Western science trods down, again, notwithstanding certain challenges within postmodern thought. So all of that is to say this we need to really slow down I think take several steps back and think about man just because we can doesn't mean we should and that's a slogan I use often in some of my classes right just because we can do such a such a thing doesn't mean we ought to do that and the minute we start talking about should or ought we're in the world of moral philosophy and so I think an injection of moral philosophy in the healthiest way possible, which in, in certain regards, in my mind, cannot be divorced from theological and the transcendent, that has to be imbued within the curriculum.
1: It sounds like you're an advocate for kind of taking some of the magic out of the algorithm. <laughs> would you say it's an accurate statement, like to demystify a piece of technology would assist in understanding the moral implications of a piece of technology or that processing that you're talking about? Would you say it's part of like demystifying the tech is a critical component to that or is that not necessary for someone to do?
2: Sure, it's very fascinating. And perhaps I wanna hear more from you about this idea of demystifying the tech, but maybe I would need to think about that a little bit more, right? I think a sober awareness of what the technology actually is, right? In that sense, yeah. The feeling of, the profound feeling of disenchantment that many late modern folks tend to have, right? A disenchanting perspective on reality is part of the offspring of a sort of uh, idolatrous <laughs> worshipping tendency towards technology. You know what I mean? I can simply zone out on my social media, on TV. Television is indeed telling me a vision that may be profoundly alienated to what whatever reality actually is. And so if we are able to say, all right, let me shut this down, let me go out for a hike, right? Again, practical things that help to revive our sense of self and our soul. But yeah, I think not going crazy thinking that technology is my goodness, like this, oh, right? But kind of having this sober awareness of it. That doesn't mean us not, let's just play it down just to play it down. We wanna be truthful. And of course we are amazed with new advancements. That doesn't mean that we should lose ourselves into it. Again, just because we can, doesn't mean we should. Yeah. And that requires a strong sense of self and evolving sense of self in relation to all these things.
1: Right.
0: Yeah, you're headed there to where I was thinking, Joe, which is what I think should be more of a demystification of ourselves. It's not necessarily the technology. I mean, the developer of the very technology themselves like they have a moral deficit that has them doing the things that is devastating to our society. So I, I think a lot of it is like, how do we, and this is what something that I'm actually really excited about AI for, which is how do we actually understand our mind in the way that behavioral economics is doing for e- economics, right? Where and more generally speaking, right, as we start to talk about, oh, what is what is the biases that we are actually prone to? And how does that impact our decision? That's actually making us a little bit better. We're not making the assumptions that we're invulnerable to some of the moral and even intellectual deficits that lead to some of the most devastating right actions in history that we've seen today.
1: Yeah, this conversation reminded me particularly about CatGPT. GPT. For those that don't know, it's an AI chatbot that was released late last year, and it has really turned the tech world, the academia. And the art world upside down, in its magic boxness and also just the technology that it's capable of. I wanted to talk to you guys about ChatGPT just because when I heard of ChatGPT, it sounded like this magic box to me, and that like, "Wow, I can prompt this text bot to write a script or to write an essay, or to, to write a joke that, you know, the content, there's something magical about it. Yeah. I don't fully understand how it works. I know that there was an algorithm created by a team, organization, whatnot, but there is still this fog to chat GPT that I think exists on a societal level because there's a lot of news articles about it, there's a lot of conversation about it, and the implications of that kind of tech since it's been released to the mainstream. Within the context of chat GPT, can you guys speak further to the ramifications of this technology as it's entering the mainstream. Cause before, I would say maybe even a couple of years back, when we would hear about this technology, it would always to me it's it's not obtainable. You know, I can't, I can't use it. Like a good example is Adobe. They demonstrated Adobe makes a lot of creative suite software and they have this audio editor that's been around forever. But I remember a couple of years ago, they demonstrated at one of their shows the ability to take a bunch of like speech data, right, like let's say from a news broadcaster, and then to just generate completely new audio that sounds very, very close to that person because the algorithm has enough, like if it has enough of that input data, it was able to output almost a near representation. And then after that, they just, they never released that feature. They showed it off. It seemed to work perfectly. And then we stopped hearing about it. Most likely because of the implications of technology in the mainstream. That was like several years ago, but chat GPT came out and now it's like anyone has the capabilities that this tool has put out. And there's a lot of implications and ramifications of that. So, yeah, Edwin, you first, because I know you have a, a heart for AI and these things. You're very well versed in these things. What's your take of GPT in the context of this conversation that we've been having about technology?
0: I honestly think this is going to change the way we do a lot of things today. I want to take a step back. What's fascinating about ChatGPT is that it's a statistical machine. It looks at the language that you put in front of it, and it predicts what should come after. So you have a prompt it with a question. Statistically, it says, what should the response be? Now. What I'm most excited about is what that tells us about how the human mind works. Remember what AI is trying to do is trying to simulate what the brain does. And one aspect of what ChatGPT is doing is informing us that we actually may be statistical machines. If you understand the way we learn, it makes a lot of sense, right? You look at how a child responds to various questions and so on. And a lot of it is this like the form fit in of, oh, this, the answer should be this. By understanding what came before it. What that does mean is that we are actually creating technology now that we don't yet understand, right? And so then we're science is coming from the engineering. Right? And I know Joe, you know, you you know what I'm talking about here, right? Yeah, that, that's absolutely that's that's wild, right? And it becomes this vicious cycle of we engineered something and now we must understand it and trying to understand ourselves in the process. Again, the implications for that is, I can't even explain it. Maybe the flip side of it is a scary scenario where we create something we don't understand, and it then behaves in ways that we can't predict. That's a scary part of it. The exciting part of it means that we can do things like scientific discovery. This is happening right now, right? With something like ChatGPT, language processing systems in general, you can take information They're doing this now, like from an entire medical library, and you can create something that diagnoses better than any doctor in this world can. And you do this with various form of other type of information, and you create super experts. That's just crazy. You can create a super scientist, but you can feed it the scientific issues that we're struggling with today. And now scientific discovery is occurring on a technological platform. Now, you know, that should scare every PhD today, but (laughs) what it does mean is that we can start to accelerate the progress of our scientific discoveries as well. So that's why I land on the positive side. Now, there's definitely going to be some devastating implications as well.
2: Love to hear what you and Joe have to say. (laughs) Yeah, man. Even the question of science and whether or not authentic science can be generated through the use of technology is one that has been around for some time. I've had the privilege of working with Dr. Adam Frank as an undergraduate at the University of Rochester, doing work in astrophysics in particular, stellar evolution and outflow, bipolar outflow from stars and other celestial objects, and is a fascinating thing there. One of the cutting edge techniques that Dr. Adam Frank was using at the time was using supercomputers. This is going back 20 years, using supercomputers to model the evolution of, let's say a star dying or the evolution of a nebula cloud. And that you can do that by inputting all of the physics and the math that undergirds that, and then run the experiment, run the experiment through the computer, <laughs> simulate it and see what would happen. And data comes out and there is as it were a discovery, but notice the air quotes, right? Because Science wants to also really remain tethered to empirical verification so that we can either falsify or affirm what we're saying. That is to say, we have to go out into nature and like kind of observe it, right? And so it's just like weird, sweet space between pure theory, which is like what, think of Albert Einstein was doing, right? Just using mathematics to sort of arrive at certain predictions and whatnot. That's like a sort of theoretical basis. And a pure observationalist, right? Somebody who's out in nature, right? Running experiments. And the technology gives that sort of third space. And that was like wild going back 20, perhaps even 25, 30 years. And I was a little bit in that. And so yeah, it shows the beautiful and amazing positive outcomes of, of the use of this technology. You know, Chat GPT as an educator, as one who teaches at a university level, it's concerning. There are conversations among our colleagues, right? About, okay, now how do we determine whether or not our <laughs> our students have cheated, right? And they wrote this essay and trying to find clever ways and whether or not we can create a software that will identify whether or not, this, you know what I mean? So you have like this deep fake. And it goes back to even to what you were saying, Louis, right? About, you know, that software. And now we know that deep fake is a very real thing where you can just, my goodness, simulate an entire image and voice, and you won't even know. And this person's like out there, right? If I wanted to do a deep fake of over Barack Obama saying like, yeah, I support whatever.
1: (laughs) (laughs) wild, yes. (laughs) It could happen, right? Right. The
2: technology's out there. So what this means is to Edwin's point, my goodness, do we even know what's happening? It does sort of reflect back on us, and it could indeed help us to think about, well, what is the human being, right? In relation to these technologies. Because in a certain sense, these technologies are becoming sort of a two-way mirror, right? That they reflect something of ourselves, but then through it, we can almost see something other, right? There's that dynamic happening there. And man, it's like, are we about this life? (laughs) Like, are we, do we want to go down this road? In one sense, it seems inevitable. That is to say, like humans are just naturally curious and we're gonna to continue to push and prod and, and hit the buttons and, and see what, what comes out. But it's a Pandora's box. And the great sci-fi literature identifies this, right? And think of Frankenstein, right? All of these works, these fictional works are brilliant in as far as they help us to think about the possibilities which are now becoming actual, right? Which are now arriving here, but look, I do think our technology has surpassed our humanity. I do think we don't have the moral wherewithal to handle it. I keep going back to pornography. It's a real pandemic here in the United States. Questions about whether or not it should be outlawed is a real thing. We know that it's a multi-billion dollar industry and we know that it's one of the great feeders for stuff like sex slavery, right? Sex trafficking globally. There's all kinds of, there's a whole web of things there. And that's just like a small thing. Pornography has always been around. I'm not speaking about pornography per se, but the technology that allows for its easy access, right? And so, again, just because we can doesn't necessarily mean we should. And we got to come back to it. Chat GPT, it's wild, but is it worth it? I think it is. I think there's a lot to be said about it as well, a lot more that needs to be said.
1: Let's say, I'm a listener, and I'm not tech savvy at all, right? Like, or I just don't care about computers, (laughs) you know? Like, but I still live in this world that is dominated by tech, and and a lot of what I believe was shared in this conversation, like that, still exists in the world. What are ways in which I can practice wisdom with technology? Whether I am a computer programmer, like heavily involved in the world of technology day in day out, or I'm, I don't know, like a farmer in the Midwest who you know, has a computer in the house, but most of the time is not immersed in the world of tech, but lives in a a technological world. So just like covering that broad spectrum of someone tech savvy and someone not tech savvy, how can we utilize wisdom with technology, with tools in today's world? Just like what are some things that we should be thinking about, asking ourselves, just some of what you shared before, Joe, but just kind of to close out this conversation, what do you guys think about wisdom and, and technology?
0: What's going on with language, natural language processing is gonna change even the way we code, right? So get familiar with that technology, right? You can, the reason we have natural language processing is as a way to flatten accessibility to some of the creation mechanisms that we have around technology. And uh, something like ChatGPT is your first step and maybe a final step because again, a system like that could actually do the programming that you ask it to do. I think our natural limitations in the move- moving into the future is actually one of imagination. And if the faster you can get into the sandbox, quote unquote, the better you'll be in terms of stretching your mind and sort of Starting to understand the creative opportunities that exist from your own perspective. You just play, right? Play is the most natural form of learning. And something like ChatGPT allows you to do that. So super practical. Don't look at Python or anything else. Go straight to ChatGPT if you don't have the background and start to better understand that.
2: In a more general assessment in light of what Edwin just shared, I would say the following. You know, technology does two things really well it affords us something new it gives us something new something novel but it also simultaneously takes something away right then to the question of wise use of technology i think then requires us to ask ourselves in an honest way whether or not we are fine with whatever is taken away that we're we're fine with that do we need to turn off the technology put it down seasonally Right. So that we can have a more direct interface with whatever it is. Think of the calculator. Just because by virtue of the invention of the calculator came about didn't mean that we stopped learning our arithmetics and so on and so forth. Right. However, there's always a threat of that of defaulting to technology and sort of turning off our own capacity to compute. I don't think it has to be an either or. It could be a both hand. Right. And it always should be a both hand. And that also means at times turning off the calculator turning off whatever technology it is and i'm speaking of technology here as machines right turning off but remember a global perspective right looking at it in a general sense technology is always always an invocation of a technique so learning how to just not use the technique right be the uncarved wood a block of wood going back to Lao Tzu's Dao De Jing right just be in nature as such these are some practical steps right and so i think couple of things, right, in light of that, create healthy rhythms. Maybe in terms of the machine, maybe a person needs to return to the dumb phone, right, and get off the smartphone because they realize so much of their time is occupied on the screen. Maybe they recognize there isn't healthy boundaries, right? They're always doing work even outside of the office, right? So, and technology is insidious like that because it's such an extension of what we already are. We can default to it naturally without ever asking The second order questions, which is what philosophy is all about. Those deeper questions as to, am I okay with this? What is this about? What have I lost through the use of this? What have I gained? We usually are just focused on what we're gaining, but not on what has been lost. And so I think those are just initial points of departure as we think about being wise in the use of technology.
1: Gentlemen, thank you so much for this conversation. I hope we continue discussing this because I think the implications of tech in our world is enormous. We're going to continue to have conversations about this and and many other things. So thank you.
0: Thank you. It was fun, brothers.